Welcome to Radical Simple Living podcast, episode 17. Uh, it's been a bit of a time since my last uh, podcast because I've had a cold and my voice was a little bit um, croaky and I didn't want to ruin the high level of professional voicing that you've uh, grown accustomed to if you're a regular listener to this podcast. Um, If you're not a regular listener, welcome, and I hope that uh, listening today will inspire you to explore some of the back catalogue of things I've spoken about. We are concerned here with Radical Simple Living, and we understand that this has two outlooks. One is a very practical outlook, what we need to do every day to ensure that our life is as simple as we can get it, or as simple as we want it. And two, a more philosophical approach that allows us to uh, live a life in which our lifestyle is part of our overall philosophy, our ethos. And to do that, we need to flip around between the incredibly practical and the theoretical. And that's not a problem. It's not a problem for me because radical simplicity means doing that, not compartmentalising your life into different bits, but trying to work on... Oh, lots of different fronts, but do it. There's a cat scratching the door already. Um, to, oh, I'm going to have to stop. I'm sorry. I asked all those cats if they had any needs before I get started, and they all shook their heads. And as soon as I start, one of them decides they want to do something. I'm sorry. Now, the topic of um, uh, today's podcast is all about a quote. And normally I can tell you where quotes come from, but this one has a bit of a a history lost in obscurity. If you go on the internet, it says all kinds of people said it first and you can find all kinds of variations on it. I first came across it in a Quaker publication from the Ohio Yearly Meeting of Quakers. um, And this was many, many decades ago. Now, they may have been the first people to say it or use it. It may have been said in meeting. I don't know. They may have been encapsulating an idea that came from somewhere else. I don't know. All I do know is lots of the people that claim to have said it first or have it claimed about them saying it first on the Internet uh, cannot be true because I, I knew it before that time. And this is what it says. Quote, remember, you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Here it is again. Remember, you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Now, that's very important to me. It seems fundamental to a radical, simple living lifestyle that you're more concerned with what you're doing and why you're doing it than if you're doing the same as everybody else does or everybody else would want you to do. So wrapped up within that quote, is the whole idea of non-conformity. And so the questions I'm going to be addressing today are to live a radically simple lifestyle, do you need to be a non-conformist? The next question is, what exactly is a non-conformist? And the third question is, are you a non-conformist? Only you can answer the last question yourself, I suspect. So here we go. Now, the word nonconformity was originally used in England in a religious setting way back in possibly um, the 17th century, maybe even earlier, 
maybe the end of the 16th century. And it was used to describe somebody who wasn't a member of the Church of England. In other words, if you didn't conform to what the Church of England said, you were a nonconformist. And being a nonconformist in those days meant you couldn't be buried in a churchyard. You couldn't be married in church. You couldn't be... Um, well, you couldn't be christened in church. The fact you're a nonconformist means you wouldn't want that, but there we go. Um, and you couldn't do other things. You couldn't go to university. You couldn't um, do all sorts of things. You couldn't enter all kinds of professions because you didn't conform to what the Church of England wanted you to conform to. So the word nonconformist was, was used in that sense. And all over England and, and Wales, you can find nonconformist cemeteries where people were buried who were denied burial in a churchyard. Now, you might think it's no big deal not being buried in a churchyard, but if you were living in a village in the 17th, 18th century and you were denied burial with everyone else that was living in that uh, village because they were members of the Church of England and you weren't, that's pretty harsh, I think. Now, over the years, the word nonconformity has developed other meanings. And we'll look at a couple of those now. Nowadays, the word nonconformist has lost its religious history, for most people anyway. And the word nonconformist is somebody that doesn't play the game in the way other people do it. Now, there's two ways you can define nonconformity. Uh, you can go to a dictionary and look up and see what they say in there. Or you can use a new method I've used lately, which is you go to social media and you put in hashtag nonconformity and then you get an up-to-date idea of how people are using the word. And I have to tell you, they're using the word in a completely different way than I would do it. I mean, I, I did this yesterday when I was thinking about this podcast and what I wanted to say. And I put in hashtag nonconformity. And what do I get? I get lots of pictures of celebrities attending award ceremonies wearing completely ridiculous costumes and beaming in front of the camera. And there's the hashtag underneath them, nonconformist or nonconformity. And of course, they're not nonconformists and they're not exercising nonconformity. They're doing what they and their publicity agent has decided would be a good idea. Oh, you go to this awards ceremony, we'll get so-and-so to design you an incredibly weird outfit that everybody will look at. You'll get your photograph uh, all over the glossy magazines and newspapers and you'll be featured on media news bulletins and Twitter and Facebook will love you. And it'll all be wonderful. The fact that... Um, to those of us that uh, are simple livers, that this is an entire waste of resources. And the fact that a celebrity puts on a stupid costume says more about exhibitionism than about nonconformity. Um, these people are doing exactly what the, every other celebrity does. They're, they're not nonconformists at all. So I would rule out that meaning whatsoever. Other people you see with the heading nonconformist is because they're doing something that most of the world is doing anyway. You see somebody who's just got a fresh tattoo on their arm and they go on Facebook or Twitter and say, hey, here's my new tattoo, non-conformist. Well, 
Of course, you're not being a non-conformist if you're doing the same thing that millions of other people are doing anyway. You're just being a conformist. You might think you're being a non-conformist, but in actual fact, you're just doing what everyone else does. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing those things. You want to get a tattoo, it's nothing to do with me. It's none of my business. In fact, so much is it none of my business that don't send me a picture of it and I'll get by somehow. The important thing is we need to restore our use of the word nonconformity to somebody who is going against the grain of the society they live in. For instance, not driving a car if you live away from a big city where transport is precarious, if it exists at all, is an act of nonconformity. Okay, because you're saying, well, everyone else owns a car. I'm not going to. I'm a nonconformist. Okay, now there are hundreds of instances where you might be a nonconformist. And again, I'm not telling you what you have to be a nonconformist about. It's up to you. You decide yourself. But what you, the important overriding facts is you're doing things not because everybody else is doing them. What you do is because you've thought about it and decided that's a course of action you take. If you live in a long street of houses with front gardens and everybody else has their front garden decked over or lawned or even that terrible environmental disaster astroturf and when it comes to your front garden you've dug it up and you've got some raised beds and you're growing fruit and vegetables in it you're the only house on the street doing that that is an act of non-conformity you're doing fine you're doing wonderfully because you're doing what you want to do and that's what non-conformity is all about history is littered with non-conformists and what i want to do is to throw at you some of the names i don't want this to become a list some of the names of historical individuals who have a uh, extolled the idea of simple living and b have led fairly non-conformist lives themselves and we can think of a whole load of these we're going to think about some individuals first of all and i jotted down a list just before sitting down to record this so some of them you will agree with some of you will disagree with and, and can I just say before I start on this listing of people, it's not going to be a list, it's going to be a listing, which makes it incredibly different. Um, you will have something to say about some of these. You'll say, oh, you know, when they were a boy, they pulled the legs off spiders. Or you will say, oh, they always left the toilet seat up. Or, they'll, or they never phoned their mother. There's all kinds of things you can say against these people. And that's not what we're talking about. Nobody's perfect. All these people have within their lives contrary aspects of their personality, just as you do, just as I do. But they did push forward ideas of simple living and they were true nonconformists in going against the grain of the society they lived in. Now, also, you can look on these people with some sort of historical perspective or you can look at them and try and put them in contemporary terms. You can say, oh, so-and-so didn't have much to say about LGBTQ issues. <coughs> Excuse me. Or you could say somebody didn't have uh, much to say about women's rights or didn't have much to say about animal rights. Of course, we have to look at these people and decide for ourselves um, whether or not 
we are going to accept what they did. And as far as I'm concerned, if somebody came out with a few good things that are helpful to people today, that makes them good enough. Now, here's a list. See how many you can um, identify as simple livers and also can you talk about their nonconformity or think about it. If you're going to talk about it, um, brief your family first and those you work with so they know what's coming their way. Rousseau. Now, Rousseau, a bit of a mixed bag, but definitely a proponent of radical, simple living uh, in the French Revolutionary period, the Enlightenment, and a lot to say. Pythagoras. Now, Pythagoras uh, run a school in the ancient world, and that school extolled simple living. And uh, is a very interesting man, and he might be even worthy of a podcast all his own one day. Now, here we come to the first transatlantic problem, because I come from Britain, and in Britain, and, and certainly in Australia, the word would be Buddha, because that's how we pronounce the letter U. Uh, in much of North America, it would be Buddha, because it's the nuclear-nuclear debate all over again. Vowel pronunciations in English vary a lot. So I'm going to say Buddha because I come from South London, which you can probably tell anyway. Jesus. Now, your views on Jesus will be your views on Jesus. But Jesus was a great exponent of simple living. And the message, as far as my readings of what Jesus had to say go, is that he thought the Jewish establishment at his time had made things far too complicated. They had turned things into rules and regulations and rituals and rank and hierarchy. And what Jesus was doing was giving people a much more simple message about how to live their life and how to respond to other people. Gandhi. Again, you will know a lot about him. Tolstoy. Leonardo. Leonardo da Vinci, that is. Henry Theroux, of course. Francis of Assisi. Lao Tzu, um, John Ruskin, William Morris, Virginia Woolf, Gary Snyder, Louisa M. Alcott. Um, the list could go on. Helen Nearing, Scott Nearing, Virginia Woolf. I could go on a long time and one day uh, I will write a book about the history of simple living which will incorporate what all those people have done. If I live that long, I might not. But that's that's really an idea. And I know we, we think a lot and a lot of people think about a religious idea or a political idea coming through history. And those of you that are very strongly involved in a religious uh, organisation or a political way of thinking will be able to trace back how ideas came through historically through that movement. The simple living movement has also got a heritage and all of those people have a part to play in it. And I know people will look at those and say, Ruskin? What's Ruskin doing there? Well, uh, Ruskin is a much maligned man, partly because that awful film called Effie that was made about his relationship with his wife, which had steam coming out of my ears because of the factual inaccuracies in every sentence of it, pretty much. And it, it wasn't anywhere close to what really happened. We know what really happened because we have the letters of Ruskin and we have various other things at the time. Ruskin, I admire so much. One of my cats is called Ruskin, a particularly fine looking cat, I will add. 
and he too is a great exponent of simple living. Um, okay, now as well as those individuals, there are also movements. And these movements have been non-conformist movements because they have been involved in a lot of people going against the mainstream of society as it was at that time, the time of their foundation. Now, again, some of these communities you may know an awful lot about, and some of them may be uh, new to you. Or you, worse still, you may think you know about them, but maybe there's something you need to research a little bit more to get the inside information. Now, a lot of these are religious, and you don't have to subscribe to their religious views to appreciate their role in the simplicity movement and to learn from them some of the ideas of simplicity. And some of these are so interesting that... Um, we will want to explore them further. Now, in no particular order, but obviously, first of all, comes the Amish, because we we all either know the Amish through experience, we live close to them, lots of you in the northeast of the US and in on the east coast of Canada will be aware of the Amish, because you live in communities that aren't too far away. And again, you might have all sorts of issues with the Amish, but we're looking at them from the point of view of people who try to live a very simple life. And in terms of success, for every religious group that has come along and failed to develop a community of simple living individuals, the Amish have been wonderfully successful. They are growing in numbers enormously. A lot of people think that people are forced to be Amish. Uh, that that's, couldn't be further from the truth. They do have the opportunity to be born into an Amish family, growing up in, in, a, in an Amish community. And then when they reach a certain age, they have this thing called Rumspringer. And that means they're allowed to leave that community and they can do all sorts of things. They can do anything that anybody else would do. They can learn to drive a car. They can wear modern clothing, they can drink, they can smoke, they can date, they can do all sorts of things that everybody else at that age does. But eventually they have to decide whether they want to return to the Amish community or not. And the vast majority of them, and I'm talking way up in the 90s, do return. And I know people say, oh, that's because they're brainwashed. Well, I don't believe they are. I think one of the things we have to accept is a lot of um, people leave Amish communities not because they were mistreated, but because they have religious difficulties with the community they grow up into and they want to explore their religious life elsewhere. A lot of those people write books about it and a lot of those people um, still hanker after many aspects of Amish life. And yes, I know there are people that have escaped with other kinds of stories. And yes, they're the ones we read about. The ones that carry on living in their community, we don't hear from because they're simply living their lives. We can think also of the Bruderhof. Now, the Bruderhof, if you don't know anything about the Bruderhof, please take the time to find out more about them. They are a branch of Hutterites, um, but they live in communities. Uh, where they share pretty much everything. And some of you might say that's a very communistic um, life um, style. It is, with a small c. They're not politically communist with a big c, 
but they are living in a community therefore that goes back to the original word of communism what it meant again in 17th century England when it was first used uh, by a judge to describe Quakers we can also talk about Quakers at this point I'm a Quaker myself and Quakers uh, come in all different sizes and shapes and colors but uh, simplicity is at the heart of Quakerism it's one of those things that all Quakers hold to be important and for some of them it's more important than others it's true to say we can talk about Mennonites and Mennonites also live like Quakers in the modern world and some of them stick very closely to a traditional Mennonite approach of simplicity and dressing simply and others of them don't uh, others of them integrate fully in society whilst remaining um, uh, remaining Mennonites. We can think about um, Sufi Muslims. Now, I don't know if you've met Sufi Muslims. If you um, uh, like Americana music or if you like British folk music, he's a big name in both of them. Richard Thompson is a Sufi Muslim and he's a very interesting man to look at and find out more about. And again, simplicity comes at the heart of their beliefs. And we can also look of course at all those Buddhist communities and we can also look at more conventional conservative Christianity if you like in terms of the monastic tradition about nuns and monks that live in a community very simply now of course the thing about monks and nuns in Christian monks and nuns is that they are celibate and celibacy is an aspect of a simplicity that might be too far for you Tolstoy became celibate not after living quite an adventurous life earlier on. I'm going to have to pause my throat for a minute. And a very interesting group called the Shakers, who were originally a, a subgroup of Quakers. They called themselves the Shaking Quakers, and that became Shakers over time. Lived very simplistic life in communities, making furniture. Shaker furniture, of course, will be known to most of you. Um, they were the first people to market seeds, vegetable seeds, flower seeds, by harvesting them and putting them in little envelopes and selling them to people. That's a, that's a shaker idea, and shakers were very innovative. They had lots of ideas, lots of marketing ideas. They were good at business as well as good at simple living. Now, their, their model of celibacy was their downfall. They relied on people leaving them with children. Quaker communities would have children left with them, unwanted children, children born out of wedlock or some other idea at the time, which uh, meant that to, to keep your baby would be a problem. So you go to the Shakers, where it will be looked after well, and it will be raised as a Shaker. And of course, whether that baby wanted to live in a simple celibate community is another issue. They probably didn't. But Shakers were renowned for all kinds of things in particular their very advanced view of racial integration people of all races um, became shakers and there was no problem there they did die out and it was the celibacy rule that probably did it so all of these groups developed a degree of non-conformity and you can say i can hear you saying it i don't know who was it that said that the amish all dressed the same how can they be non-conformists well, the answer to that question is simple. They are conformists at a certain level within their community. 
And those of you that know anything about the Amish will know that one Amish will look different from another Amish because of fine points. It could be their hat band. It could be the head covering that's worn by the women. It could be whether they wear their suspenders, that's braces in, in UK Australian terms, whether they wear their braces as a double set of braces coming down or whether they wear a single brace going diagonally across their chest. There's all kinds of things which if you if you study the Amish closely enough, you will get to understand is a way of differentiating them from other Amish groups. Now they are conformist within the group as they all follow the same lifestyle and they all dress the same, but they are non-conformist in terms of the vaster society that they live in. It's the, the internet is full of pictures of an Amish carriage outside a, a, a Walmart branch or, or the Amish inside walking around the supermarket with a truck, you know, or in McDonald's. They, they live normal lives, but they are very, very devoted to their community and their community is devoted to simplicity, community living, to love one with another and to care one for another. So I would say the Amish are well worth studying in some real detail to find out more about them. Now, the third question we raised ourselves, I think, was, as you know, this is unscripted and I do meander and sometimes I make points at the beginning of the podcast, which I don't follow up on because I simply don't remember that's where I was going. It's a bit like when Charles Dickens was writing. Charles Dickens wrote the majority of his work in serials, in magazines, and quite often he forgot at the end of the serial what he said at the beginning and had to go back and reread it. Hence that famous bit in A Christmas Carol, which was published in four parts in um, a magazine that Dickens was the editor of. And in the first part he says, a spirit will visit you on each of the three succeeding nights. And then when Charles Dickens got to write the last instalment, he realised that he had written all the spirits visiting on one night. And so Scrooge has to jump up and say, the spirits have all visited me in one night, it's Christmas Day, and that kind of thing. It happens a lot. Um, there's also famous British soap opera from radio called The Archers, where one of the characters um, called... Uh, I can't remember her name. I'm not a listener myself. But one of the li li listeners has died three times. One of the characters has died three times because scriptwriters forgot they had killed her off sometime in the past. She never appeared this character, but people used to talk about her. And on three separate occasions, she died and nobody thought to write it down and remember it except those people who are uh, aficionados of the archers. If you're, if you're listening in part of the world where you don't get the archers, my advice is don't bother. In fact, there's a, a, a famous uh, British scientist who lost the use of his legs and somebody said to him, what's the worst thing about not being able to move about? And he said, um, it was Dewar, his name, if you're interested. He said, the worst thing about it is if the archers come on the radio and you can't get up to turn them off. I leave that with you. I'm sorry for insulting all our Archer's listeners out there. Um, okay, are you a non-conformist? Well, the fact that you want to live a radical, simple life, and I take it that's why you're listening, suggests to me that you are a non-conformist. And 
How do you show that you're a nonconformist to the rest of the world? Well, the, the first thing is you don't have to. There's no good reason if you don't want to that you can't walk down the street and people don't think you're a nonconformist. People think you're quite a regular person. They might, if they talk to you, discover the true nature of your nonconformity, and that's fine. Or you might want to use your nonconformity in some way which shows the world you're a little bit different. I myself am a plain dresser, which I'll talk about at some time in the future. Um, and uh, because of that, people look at me and think, oh, there's something a bit different about him. I don't know what it is. I was, uh, I took a rare visit to the shops yesterday. It's the first time I've been out shopping since November last year, and it's now mid-February. And in the shop, somebody just stared at me. It was a woman and she just stared at me and I looked round later on and she was still staring at me. It could have been it could have been my chisel good looks, but I have a feeling she just thought there's something weird about that man. I'm not that weird, but I look weird. Now, I don't plain dress to shop people, I don't plain dress to appear more radical than I really am. I do it because it's just part of my personality and it's what I want to do. Just like you dress the way you want to do because it reflects your personality. And if you tend to dress in a way that is different from the rest of the world, that's your business. Nobody else has the right to tell you that. If you prefer to turn your front garden into a vegetable plot, that's nobody else's business. That's your, Perhaps you'll persuade somebody else to start doing the same thing. So part of being a nonconformist is about doing things your own way. Um, some nonconformists can do a very good impression of being just like everybody else. Louisa M. Alcott, who you'll all know as the author of Little Women and lots of other good books. If you just read Little Women, there's loads of books of hers that are all available free somewhere to listen to or to read um, that show all kinds of skills of writing that it's lost. It's always upsetting when somebody just has one book, the fame of which outtakes all the others. But Louisa M. Alcott was a friend of Thoreau and of Emerson. Her, her father, Charles Bronson Alcott, was a, an incredibly nonconformist man. He, he was a nudist at one time and he uh, started a community called Fruitlands, which was dedicated to growing fruit. The, um, the nudity went badly wrong because it gets pretty chilly in Massachusetts in the winter and um, he had problems there. And I'm afraid Fruitlands went the way of many of these um, institutions in, in proving to be a commercial failure. But Louisa Ram Alcott wrote these books, and in the book she doesn't suggest, it's, it's said that um, her family in, in Little Women and the books that came after it, um, Little Men and Joe's, uh, Joe's Boys and all of these books, that it was her own family she was writing about. But she dressed up her family to look more conformist in Little Women, her father is away fighting in the Civil War and uh, you're aware that the family is a bit different from the other families around them, principally because they seem to ignore all class boundaries that did exist in New England at the time. New England, because it was settled with a lot of people from England, um, had a class structure built into it. And Louise Rem Alcott's characters ignore and break down this class structure very refreshingly. Her real life was much more nonconformist, and if you read some of her non-fiction writing, you get some view of that. The same with Virginia Woolf, 
who, to read her novels, you would think, oh, she's not very nonconformist. She was the most nonconformist person you can imagine in all sorts of ways. And the more you find out about her life, the more you realise this. And I think I touched on something quite important here. Throughout history, it has been far easier for men to be nonconformists than for women to be nonconformists. People would say, oh yeah, Henry Theroux, he's a bit weird living in the woods. Ah, never mind, it's Henry. We'll... If a woman decides to be nonconformist, much more criticism is levelled at her and history, particularly Quaker history in North America, is full of women who have broken social norms and have suffered or in fact on occasions even been executed for it. So being a nonconformist as a woman wasn't always easy. Now, do you have to be, this is my second question, do you have to be nonconformist to take part in radical, simple living? I'm going to give you a one word answer and that answer is going to be yes. Because radical, simple living involves you in throwing away lots of things that are an accepted part of living in society. Respectability. Your neighbours have a view of respectability, which means being like everybody else. It doesn't mean being a respected person. It lost that meaning a long time ago. It means, oh, they come from a respectable family. That means a family with no weirdos in it, basically, doesn't it? Um, you, in breaking away from that idea of what you should be doing, are becoming a nonconformist. By wanting to grow your own food, by wanting to make your own clothing, by wanting to look after the technology that you have to deal with every day. Back in the 18th, early 19th, early 20th century, everybody had to do this. So growing your own food and making your own clothes wasn't nonconformist then, but it is now. Okay, um, lots of things to think about there. Please come back at me. Please come back at me and uh, uh, tell me what you think. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do leave comments. Please do like. All of these things help me to get more people listening because I'm here to spread ideas. No other reason. Okay? That's what my job is, to spread ideas about simple living. And you are my vectors. You are the people that can tell other people that might like to listen to this podcast to listen. Thank you for joining me today. I hope to be with you again very, very soon. Goodbye.